You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Okay, we're in Psalm 73 this morning, and uh, thank you, Pastor Chris, for praying for me. I'm Chris as well, and I'm one of the pastors, if you don't know me, in, uh, in our McDonough congregation. And uh, if, if you've been with us at all this summer for our summer in the Psalms, um, maybe you don't know how we came to the Psalms that we've been preaching over. Uh, since we aren't covering the entire book, I wanted you to know uh, that some of these came because we wanted to hit on the various genres in the book of Psalms. Uh, psalms of lament, like, or this psalm this morning, a, a psalm of wisdom. Uh, some of the psalms that, that have been preached already this summer came from pastors in our church that said, this is the psalm that means a lot to me, and I, I would love the opportunity uh, to preach to our people a, a psalm that means a lot to me. And so that, that's been some of those psalms. Uh, this particular psalm is not one that I picked. Uh, but nevertheless, as I've had the opportunity, privilege, and joy of studying, studying it over the last several weeks, it has been one that has really resonated deeply with me. It's a, it's a really personal psalm, but at the same time, as you'll see as we look at the text, it's one that kind of speaks to the congregation of people. So the psalmist is, is saying, this is something that I have personally experienced. It has happened to me, and now I want to tell everyone else about it. And so uh, we'll see that in various ways this morning. Uh, but one way that, that kind of stuck to me uh, particularly in this modern context, is that word deconstruction. Anybody, anybody heard that as of recent, that, that people are deconstructing from the faith? Anybody familiar with that at all? I'm getting a couple of head nods, like maybe you've heard of that. It's okay that if you haven't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that in just a minute. But it seems to be the popular phrase nowadays. Like, I have deconstructed from Christianity, and some people, or most people that start to use that phrase, seem to end up on the atheist side. I've deconstructed from the faith, and now I have no faith at all. Um, Especially, uh, it seems to be a popular phrase for those who have been professing Christians all their life. It's supposed to be a, a religious phrase, but it seems to be honed into the Christian community. We're hearing about it all the time. YouTubers, if you're familiar with them, uh, Rhett and Link, uh, they, they talked about their own deconstruction from Christianity last year. Joshua Harris, many of you are familiar with him. He wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and he also left Christianity. Derek Webb from the infamous uh, 90s band Cademan's Call. He deconstructed from the faith and left Christianity. On and on we could go, listing the name of celebrity Christians who kissed Christianity goodbye after they deconstructed. Deconstruction, by the way, as one writer put it, is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. Perhaps you have stories yourself that hit closer to home. Maybe members of your family, aunts, uncles, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, maybe even your own children have deconstructed from the faith. And perhaps you're sitting here today 
I don't want to leave that out. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I, I actually, if I, if I was honest with you, Chris, I'm on that journey myself. I really don't know about the beliefs that I've grown up understanding and knowing to be true, and I'm just on that process of deconstruction myself. I could show you person after person in my own life that I'm still friends with on Facebook that I went to Bible college with who after some time away from Bible college or in seminary said that they were doing the same thing. In fact, uh, one such friend just announced his deconstruction a month ago on Instagram. I would have never expected it. This is a guy who was leading out in the Bible college that I went to. I mean, he was always speaking for Jesus. He was leading out in conferences in his area. He was on fire for the Lord, it seemed. And now he's walked away from the faith. Now, before you, just, before you start to think that this is a recent phenomenon in the church or that deconstruction is even a final thing that once someone has deconstructed, as they call it, from the faith that it is final. I want us to spend some time in Psalm 73 examining if that is actually the case. Could someone who has professed to deconstruct from the faith, could they repent? Could they come back? Could they come to their senses? Could they come to the Lord? Because in it, the writer Asaph, who was a Levite serving as the worship leader of God's people, the Israelites, he gets extremely personal in Psalm 73 about his own doubts about the faith. His own doubts about who God is, how he has rescued his people, doubts that you may also have. Doubts that you may have also had, or maybe your family members have those same doubts and you want to be able to say something to them. What do I say? Where do I go? I don't want to put modern words or modern concepts into Psalm 73, though, but it appears to be Asaph's own journey. So would you turn there, if you haven't already, to Psalm 73 with me? And as you find it, would you stand with me as I read aloud so that we honor God's word in that way? Psalm 73. Asaph writes, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What I love about this particular psalm is that the author, Asaph, is writing to us, to the people of God, after he's gone through a process himself. And he has come through it on the other side with not no faith, but he, in fact, has strengthened faith after he comes through this difficult process. And he's laying it all out there for us to hear and receive from his journey. Like, I just want you to know where I've been. I want you to know where I've been before the Lord. I want you to know those doubts that kept running through my head all the while. And now here is where I am, strengthened in my face. It's meant to be read. It's meant to be dissected before the people of God. It's meant to be meditated over. Asaph wants others to benefit from what he went through, to help process between what we know to be true and how we experience life. As he writes, we see a transition in Asaph's perspective. The first half of of the chapter, verses 1 through 16, he's looking around at the wicked. They're everywhere around him, and he is just looking at the wicked from that particular perspective. Verses 17 through 28 is him looking at God. When I look at God, I get a completely different perspective. And so this psalm, as we listen to it this morning, as we read it, as we meditate on it this week, we think to ourselves, Psalm 73, I must ask the question. I want every single one of us in here this morning to ask this question. Where am I looking? Where am I looking? When when I think about who I am and where I am in my faith journey, am I just finding myself looking around at all the other people in this world, all the wicked people, or am I fixing my eyes on God? Am I fixing my eyes on Christ Jesus? And we'll see that more in the text in just a minute. But from the text this morning, just as a whole, I want us to see this particular thing. If I look to God, If I look to God, he will give me the proper perspective on life and faith. I think that's good news for us as Christians. I think that's good news for for us who know people who are walking this uh, difficult journey where they are in the faith. If I look to God, he'll give me the proper perspective on life and faith. And first, we're going to see what it looks like when we look around at the wicked. Beginning in verse 3, that Asaph is looking first at the wicked, but first a bit of context. He writes there in verse 1, 
Look there in the scriptures with me. Truly God is good to Israel, he says, to those who are pure in heart. One commentator said, the psalm is not the doubting of someone who is opposed to God. It's not even someone who is trying to prove that God isn't good. Here's what the psalmist is saying. This is the doubts of someone who believes God is good, but at the same time, someone who is being honest about their struggles. This is where I am, the psalmist is saying. Asaph rightly sees that God is good to his covenant children, but verse 2 makes us wonder if he believes that he's one of them. Sure, God, you're good to Israel. Sure, you, you have your faithfulness upon them, but and I, don't, I don't know if that's me. When, when I look around, I don't know if the goodness of God has been bestowed to me and my family and my children. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph knows that God is good to his children, but he doesn't know if he's the one of the sons because of what's happening within him. I thought to myself, Peter, Jesus' disciple, must have thought the same thing that night when Jesus was out on the water and called Peter to him in Matthew chapter 14. And we see Peter get out of the boat. We don't know exactly how long he walked on the water, but he walked toward Jesus, and then all of a sudden, what did he do? He began to let out, to outside forces dictate what he knew to be true. The text says there in Matthew chapter 14, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And then he began to sink. Asaph says, man, my feet in this faith in which I stood began to stumble. I almost sank. And then he tells us what those outside forces were that he allowed to dictate what he knew to be true. Verse 3, look there in the text with me. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We saw several weeks ago in Psalm chapter 1, if you were with us, that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will, does anybody remember the word? Perish. The righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. But when Asaph looks around, what does he see? He doesn't see anything about the righteous growing or prospering. He sees the exact opposite. He sees the wicked prospering. What's the deal? And as he looks at the wicked, Asaph shows us two things. If you're taking notes, I really want you to get these two particular things because I think that they give us a picture into our internal world, knowing that if we are experiencing either of these things, it could clue us into the state of our hearts. The first is this. We grow envious of how others live. What's going on in the state of my heart when I am constantly fixated on the wicked people that are all around? The first thing that is happening is that we grow envious of how others live. In verse 4, we see that the wicked still die peacefully. They still die peacefully. They have no pangs until death, the Bible says. In verses 4 and 5, we see that their bodies are in great shape according to the culture, fat and sleek. Like, man, I wish that was still true about that cultural perspective. But regardless, the psalmist is looking around and he is seeing the wicked. Man, they're not, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. 
They're prospering. Their bodies are looked at by everyone else as these things to be praised. Verses 6, 9, and 11, they show us that nothing is happening to them as the wicked grow in pride. In fact, they wear their pride as a necklace. So Asaph is looking around and he's saying, I don't know about you. I've given a lot of time. I've given a lot of effort to the things of God. And when I look around at the wicked, nothing is happening to them. In fact, their lives are better than my life. Verse 12 tells us that they're always at ease. Their lives seem to be pain-free. All the while, they're growing in wealth. Asaph is looking around at the wicked, and he, he sees God is doing nothing to them except giving them easy lives. How in the world is that fair? Asaph has to wonder. He shows how we grow envious of others, how others live when we're looking at the wicked. But second, we grow dissatisfied with how other people live. With that, sorry, we grow dissatisfied with how we also live ourselves. Verse 13, here's what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. If envy towards others doesn't hit you, surely this one does. Because here's what Asaph is saying. When we look to the wicked, we start to think, man, you don't have to raise your hand if you've ever thought this. Maybe I have. Man, if, if I didn't give a percentage of my income to the church, I could have that truck that my neighbor has. Man, if I, if I weren't a Christian... I wouldn't have to feel guilty about finding sexual fulfillment outside of the bounds of marriage. I mean, really. God doesn't seem to be giving the wicked the same life as me. In fact, he seems to be giving them a better life. And if he isn't, they sure seem to be happier than I. Sometimes we think about Life like the vineyard workers in Matthew chapter 20. Where you remember some of the workers got there first thing in the morning and they labored the entire day. And workers that were hired in that last hour, they were given the same wage as those that had labored the entire day. And so those people that had worked all day were enraged. How is this fair? How are we being given the same wage? God, why are you doing this to us? We start to think, man, I'm looking around. So, some people in our church, they, they don't serve on any Sundays. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm saying this is sometimes what we think. Man, some people never serve on a serve team. And I'm, I'm with the kids two times a month. And then another Sunday, I'm on the barista team. Nobody's ever thought that, have they? Why do I have to give up so much time for the sake of others? If I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have to have people in my home all the time. I wouldn't have to give up one night of my week to life group. I wouldn't have to give up a, another time in my schedule for a DNA group. Man, things would be a lot easier. I could sleep in on Sunday mornings. There's a, the, the rest of the world is having a great time this morning. 
This all sounds pretty good. On top of all this, Asaph says, I kept it all to myself. If he would have spoken about all of this before processing it in a particular way, it would have actually been harmful to those in his faith community. And so before we move on to Asaph's perspective change, it is important for us to see that, particularly in verse 15. Something common with modern faith deconstruction, as I coined it at the beginning of the sermon, stories, something common with these stories is a verbal processing of everything for everyone. So here's how I'm going to process deconstructing my faith. I'm going to get on Instagram live and I'm going to let all of my friends know exactly what's going on in my life. And so I'm going to let everybody that's always been around me hear what is going on that I'm processing. Like, I'm going to put it out there for everyone to hear. I'm just going to do this as a way of getting out what I've been thinking through. The problem with that is twofold. One, you're always going to be affirmed by others on your social medias, typically, that already affirm your perspective. Okay? That's just how social media works. I hate to break it to you. But usually when you say something, you've already gathered the right friends around you that share in your perspective. So second, you are going to harm those whose theological foundations are not fully formed. And so although it was difficult, Asaph rightly withheld from telling the assembly what he was going through. Now, I can hear the questions at this point. So if I'm struggling with my faith, Chris... What you're saying is, I should tell no one. I can't say anything to anyone. No, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Asaph is saying. It is good to have the ear of several others in your church. It's good to have the ear of several others, your pastors included, of what's going on in your faith journey. It's right to inform them of what's going on in your heart. The danger is in communicating to the whole before you've actually processed all the facts. Most importantly, Asaph, as his perspective shifts, he tells us that it is best to take your questions, don't miss this, to a particular person. And the particular person that Asaph says is best to take your questions to is the Lord. And so here's here's what Asaph is, is cluing us in on this morning. If you find yourself there, number one, I would be happy to sit down as one of the pastors at South Point and hear about what's going on in your heart. If if that's you, I want to know that. I want to journey with you. But second, and probably more important, take it to the Lord. That's what we're being instructed to do here. It's been where Asaph was looking. The Pharisees were constantly looking for ways to see that Jesus messed up. They were looking to disprove him and to show his followers that they were being deceived. They looked for ways to catch him doing work on the Sabbath. But you know what the the Pharisees failed to see? They failed to look and find the Lord of the Sabbath. And so in verse 16, we get this confession from Asaph, but but when I thought how to understand this, look there in the text with me, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I started trying to put all the pieces together, he says, and it was just an exhausting work. James Mays says it like this, reason cannot unravel experience to supply the ground for faith. I think sometimes that we're trying to make everything about the Christian faith make sense on our terms. 
if A plus B is this, then it must equal C. And we're trying to make it all make sense on our own terms, in our own ways, forgetting that there is this supernatural element, that there is this otherworldly element to all of life, that there is a God who is not like us in all kinds of ways. And that that God is sovereign, that he is creator, that he made things out of nothing. He's not like us. And that we can't begin to dissect the things that have happened to us and are happening all around us, expecting that to take us to faith in God. We have to do it on his terms. For Asaph, he was done with this thinking. The questions begin, where to turn? Where do I begin to look if this is where I find myself? There's this beautiful transition in verse 17 that we must not miss. It was exhausting. I was wearied of putting it all together, Asaph says, until verse 17. What does it say? It says this. I went into the sanctuary of God. You see, nothing made sense. All of life was chaos. The wicked were prospering. They had everything. Their life was easy. They were not scared of death. They were not even in pain until death. I saw life in this particular perspective until what? I went into the sanctuary of God. Christian, in your doubting, in your envy, are you seeking the Lord? The psalmist says his perspective completely changed when he went into the sanctuary of God, when he sought out the presence of God. And it was then, Asaph says at the end of verse 17, that I discerned their end. Two things happen when Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God. First, his envy for the life of the wicked, it begins to wane. Remember, before when his perspective was just on the wicked and he had no thought about God and he had no perspective of God, he thought that the wicked life was the best life. And now that he goes into the sanctuary of God, his envy for the life of the wicked, it begins to wane. Why? Because all he could see before was their health, their success, their prosperity. But now that he has fixed his eyes upon God, he sees that the success of the wicked is how long? It's temporary. It's but a blip in the scheme of eternity. And that if they do not repent, if the wicked do not find the end of themselves in this life, verse 18, they will fall to their own ruin, Asaph writes. Verse 19, they will be destroyed in a moment on that final day. Verse 20, God's favor is actually not on the wicked. Now Asaph is beginning to see it rightly. When his perspective is on the Lord, he sees that the prosperity that the wicked were dealing with, were growing in, is only temporary. And through this, Asaph realizes he couldn't see these things because verse 21 says what? That he was bitter. Verse 22, that he was ignorant. He didn't want to see God for who he really is. I think that before Jesus Christ comes in and gives us a new heart, before our dead hearts are regenerated and we're given new life, that is really the state of every single one of us, isn't it? That we actually find ourselves not wanting to obey, not wanting to listen, not wanting to do life 
on God's terms, but only wanting to do the things that we want to do, seeing things out of our perspective. As Asaph meets God in a sanctuary, his envy for the life of the wicked wanes, and second, his gratefulness towards God for his own life grows. His gratefulness towards God for his own life grows. I want you to think about that for just a second. If you find yourself resonating more with Asaph when he had his mind and his eyes focused completely on the wicked, maybe you find yourself there today. Maybe you haven't been given a new heart. Maybe your life is still far from God. The text would encourage us to say, to do this morning, to repent of our sins and trust in Christ Jesus by faith. Again, second, With his eyes fixed upon God, his gratefulness toward God for his own life grows. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Wait a minute. Asaph now sees. Psalm 1 is absolutely true. The one who fears the Lord, he is blessed. God is always keeping me. He never lets one of his children go. I will not be let go. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He begins to think like Jesus' disciples here when in John chapter 6, after a long day of ministry, many of Jesus' other disciples, they begin to turn their back on him. The text says they no longer walked with him. They heard what Jesus had to say. They saw the, the demands that were placed on their lives and they just walked away. Man, we're not, we're not doing what Jesus says any longer. So Jesus, at that moment, zeroes in on his disciples, the 12 in particular, and he says, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to take the road that they've just taken? Do you want to just abandon me at this moment? And Simon Peter answers him, and he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Asaph has finally come to the end of himself. He was tired of looking around at the wicked, and he met God in a sanctuary. And maybe he still didn't have all the answers. Maybe every single question and doubt didn't go away. I don't think that they ever will in this life. But he knew that he was grateful to God for keeping him. And so he lets out this raw prayer of faith beginning in verse 25. Many of us are familiar with it. Look there with me. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Isn't this what happens to us every single week as the saints of God are gathered together on Sundays? Like what what happens here every single Sunday morning is that we are reoriented. Our eyes are taken off of the things of this world and they are reoriented onto God, onto his ways, onto his purposes, onto his glory. A corporate turning from having our eyes on those things to these things. 
to King Jesus and his cross where we see that he took on the wrath of God that we deserve to take on for all eternity, that he bore it himself. He drank that bitter cup to the last drop. He did it for any and all who would ever trust in him by faith. Don't miss this final verse. Asaph says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see, Asaph begins his thinking, we see in verse 1, with the goodness of God as defined by his liking and his circumstances. This is how I see the goodness of God. This is how I know the goodness of God to play out in this life because I'm looking around at all of the wickedness in this world and the wicked people, and I know that the goodness of God does exactly this. But in that transition in verse 15, when Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God, something stirs within him, something actually happens within his heart. And he says now, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. If God was good to me before, I wouldn't have to live in pain. I wouldn't have to suffer. If God was good to me, Asaph said in the beginning, I wouldn't have to try so hard to remain pure. I could enjoy much more of the sensual pleasures in this life. If God were good to me, I could live a long life with no cares or concerns for morality. But as he meets God in the sanctuary, his perspective is changed. His view of the goodness of God changes as well. You see, it's as one commentator said, God is good to the pure in heart precisely in being their God. He goes from looking at the circumstances and things in his life that he would look to to see that God is good now to looking to God himself saying, you are good and you keep your children. Asaph begins his journey towards deconstruction, not questioning the goodness of God in general, but the goodness of God towards him and ends with knowing that God is good in being his God. I don't know this morning where you are in your faith journey, whether you are deconstructing, reconstructing, or still at the end of this message this morning have no idea what those things mean. That is okay. But I do know for certain one thing, as one writer put it, your story, your faith journey can end in settled hope and newfound joy. That where Asaph found himself after coming into the sanctuary of God can also be true for you, and you can find the goodness of God in God himself. The question you must ask yourself before the Lord this morning is, where am I looking? Where am I looking? I was recently out walking with a friend through his neighborhood, and he had his son in a stroller, and I have my children in a stroller, both pushing down the street. And my, my daughter at some point says that she wants to push her brother. So I said, okay, no problem. We got all the time in the world. There's no cars coming in the subdivision. You, you, have, you have at it. And so she starts pushing her little brother. I had agreed to it. I watched her flail for a whole a whole long time for the next 20 minutes or so. The problem wasn't that 
she just wanted to take her brother all over the place. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on in her mind. Maybe she did. Maybe she wanted to see his destruction in that moment. I don't think that that was her heart. I don't think that that was her goal. Here was the problem as I surmised it. It was just where she was looking. You see, she was pushing the stroller all the while looking at the ground. And so as she was pushing, do you know where she went? Exactly where she thought was straight. She couldn't see where the front of that stroller was going. She couldn't see her brother in front of her. All she was doing was looking at the circumstances directly in front of her. She needed the ability to look just over the stroller, and she would have been able to walk right straight ahead. She wouldn't have hit any curb. She wouldn't have taken him into the middle of the lane. She would have walked exactly where she needed to walk. Seeing over the stroller just a bit would have made all the difference. Looking in the right place would have made all the difference for her, and it would have made for a a better journey for her in all honesty. Brothers and sisters, Asaph has written Psalm 73, inspired and preserved by our God so that you and I would know exactly where to fix our eyes. We aren't to fix our eyes on the wickedness of this world. We aren't to fix our eyes on the wicked people who seem to prosper and seem to enjoy all of life. We aren't to fix our eyes on the things that we could have had if we didn't tithe. We aren't to fix our eyes on anything else except the Lord and himself. And when we do that, It makes all the difference. When we meet the Lord in his sanctuary, it changes our life. It changes our journey. It gives us a new perspective, and it makes the journey worth living. If I look to God, he will give me the proper perspective on life and faith. Now, as we close this morning, I want you to consider exactly where the living God is calling you to look this morning. Where is he calling you to look? Where have your eyes been and where do they need to be? Where is God calling you to look? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 seems so appropriate this morning. It says that we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. 